today on the Jay Doherty Podcast. Top Democrats go head-to-head in the most recent Democratic debate. ABC News has the coverage, and I have the analysis. Who won, and why is this debate different? Additionally, Apple has announced their highly anticipated new devices, most predominantly their iPhones. In my opinion, everything about the phones is pretty extraneous, including the price, look, cameras, feel, and even the name. Why? Finally, the Democratic attempt for impeachment is becoming more prevalent in the House of Representatives. What do I think about this? And in a bigger sense, what do I think about impeachment? We'll answer all that and more on episode number 107 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. And now, broadcasting live from downtown Chicago, here's your host, Jay Doherty. That is correct, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of the Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 107 right here. Thank you very much for listening. Lots to talk about today. Lots of news happening this week. We'll talk about the Democrats, their third debate, third pair of debates. This one was not a pair, though. This one was actually just one debate, but the previous ones... Uh, broadcasters first on NBC, then CNN, were split up into two, so a total of four debates, but over two courses, and then this one was just one, uh, and uh, it had the, basically what they considered to be, and their metrics considered to be, the top candidates. We'll talk about what I, I, I wrote a lot of thoughts down uh, before I actually saw the debate, and then I was going to record an episode, but I said, you know, the debate's tonight, why don't I just cram it into one super episode for this debate. Well, let's talk about Apple. Uh, they've announced their new iPhones, a new Apple Watch, new iPad, tons of new devices out from them. Uh, why do... Should you buy it, basically, is the question that I'll be asking. Uh, and if it's worth the money. And also, this kind of lurking idea that's been going on in, in the House of Representatives on the Democratic side, uh, whether or not Democrats will be successful in their continued push for impeachment uh, even though many of the smart, very moderate ones know it will go nowhere, and you know whether or not impeachment, the idea of impeachment on an international scale on a long-term basis, if it's actually a good idea, and you know even more simpler than that, if they even have cause to impeach the sitting president of the United States, we'll have all of that and more coming up on episode number. 107 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. Before we get to all of that, this episode of the Jay Doherty Podcast is brought to you by the JDRC Politics Podcast. If you're looking for hard-hitting, intellectually-based discussions on international politics, listen to the JDRC Politics Podcast, hosted by me, Jay Doherty, and my good friend Ryan Clark. We have weekly, hour-long discussions on what is making the headlines all around the world, and you can learn more at jdrcpolitics.com or listen in your favorite podcasting directory. Um, and then before we get rolling on all of the uh, debate and tech stuff, uh, this week was the 18th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. Uh, horrific terrorist, uh, horrific terrorist attack uh, here in the United States. Um, very, very, very uh, sad day. Uh, very solemn day of remembrance. Um, President Trump paid his respects initially. He, he spoke in front at the Pentagon uh, on on the day to, to uh, soldiers. But before you know, everyone got rolling and things. At 6:32 a.m., he tweeted a graphic of him and his wife uh, with the letters "Never forget," uh, which presidents have done similar things in the past, which is a great. Uh, move, in my opinion, by Trump, uh, you know, just always kind of document your uh, existence and your support uh, for those who have been affected by 9-11. But he kind of ruined that uh, solemn vibe that he initially created by tweeting out 10 minutes later at 6.42 a.m., quote, the Federal Reserve should get ri- get our interest rates down to zero or less, and we should start to refinance 
our debt. Interest could be brought way down, while at the same time substantially lengthening the term. We have uh, the great currency power and balance. The United States should always be paying the lowest rate. No inflation. It is only the naivety of Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve that does not allow us to do what other countries are already doing. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that we are missing because of boneheads. That's 10 minutes later on September 11th, 6.42 a.m. The original tweet came out um, at 6.32 a.m. So, I don't know. It kind of ruined that vibe. I, you know, I thought he was doing a good job, and I think he did, you know, overall he did a good job. I think the speech, the speech that he delivered at the Pentagon was a little bit extraneous. As part of the this solemn commemoration, he delivered a speech about the history of 9-11, what it means, the very sad truth behind it, uh, and what he actually, actually plans to do if, for some reason, any terrorists were to ever infiltrate our homeland, what power he would exert on them. It was very strangely worded and kind of leaves you to be inquisitive, to say the least. If for any reason they come back to our country, we will go wherever they are and use power the likes of which the United States has never used before. And I'm not even talking about nuclear power. Okay, so exactly what power are you talking about then, Mr. Trump? Uh, I ask that very respectfully, because I really don't know. You know, I think the, the general understanding between the American public and everyone in the United States is that nuclear power is the supreme kind of last resort in, in power and in terms of, like, physical domination that the United States has uh, especially compared to its rivals, so I, I don't know. It was just a little bit, a little bit strange there. I wasn't really expecting that from his uh, solemn commemoration of 9/11. All right, so that's that's. Uh, I just want to throw that out there. My commemoration of 9/11, very sad day in American history. I've kind of become very fascinated with the topic. I've watched a lot of documentaries. Very sad day, uh, and you know, I. I just can't even imagine the, the sadness uh, that so many people have had to go through in remembering that day and also experiencing it. All right, we're going to move on now to Democrats. They fought it out in the uh, third debate, this time a little bit smaller, a little bit more eventful. Talk about my thoughts next on the Jay Doherty podcast. This uh, debate consisted of Minnesota Senator A.B. Klobuchar, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, former Vice President Joe Biden, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, California Senator Kamala Harris, entrepreneur Andrew Yang, former, former Texas Representative Beto O'Rourke, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary under President Obama, Julian Castro. So before this debate, uh, going through this, uh, just, you know, not even hearing it, I was writing this at like... I don't know, between 5.30 and 6.30 a.m., the day of the debate. Uh, I came in really focusing on the format and style of these candidates and how that interacts with the other candidates, but also, obviously, how they work their policy into it. Uh, I think that is a really interesting thing to look at, you know, the demeanor, but also how they can work their policy into emotions and vice versa, because um, I always say, just like so many things, the policy is what affects the people, not the words. Uh, I think the president is an example of that. I think his words are incredibly hurtful. They're completely unnecessary, and if he were to just stop talking, I think he would. his approval ratings might go up, which is probably a little bit concerning that I even have to say that. Uh, I've also, uh, I think the the interesting thing that I saw coming into this debate is that we've, you know, we've seen high-ranking progressives and moderates debate before, but now we'll see uh, Kamala and Bernie interact more. We'll see, I think, for the first time, Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren interact on the same same stage. 
Um, it's going to be really interesting. That, that was my thought going into it. How are, how are these kind of popular moderates, popular progressives going to work it out? CNN had, uh, in my opinion, uh, the great selection of each of these candidates. Um, I'm not saying that the debate was better, or, you know, I'm not trying to be biased, but I thought the, the, the lineup that they randomly chose, which is obviously not random, uh, was really, really uh, prime because they had the big moderates versus the small progressives on one night, and then on the second night they had the small moderates versus the big progressives. And this, this time we're just seeing everyone, all the popular people. Um, I've also consistently observed, observed that in past presidential debates, the setting and the format gets more formal as the race heats up, as the debates continue. Uh, and I would like to make the argument that they generally still are. I think everyone can kind of disagree with that. Um, I thought going into that, that this format, this one, the specific debate, now that it's the third, they're kind of narrowing their scope of the candidates. I thought it would be a big shift, maybe get a little bit more formal. Um, you know, and, and their, their rules got a little bit more formal, instead of just gawking and bantering constantly like they've done in the past debates, especially NBC one. The debate format will be 1 minute and 15 seconds for direct responses to questions, and 45 seconds for responses and rebuttals. Candidates will have the opportunity to, to, to deliver opening statements, but there will be no closing statements, according to ABC News, who hosted the debate uh, alongside Univision. Speaking of which, perhaps uh, equally as interesting from a media standpoint is who is hosting the debate. ABC News uh, Chief Anchor George Stephanopoulos, ABC World News Tonight uh, Chief David Muir, ABC News Correspondent Lindsay Davis, and Univision Anchor Jorge Ramos are going to be moderate. Okay, so I, I, I said this. I was like four people, really four people moderating a debate of about ten people. So, I, yeah, I was like, how are they going to do this? And, and they actually did kind of the more simple way. I thought it's going to be like half and half, like Savannah and Lester in the NBC debate, or maybe Chuck and Rachel, like they did in the, also in the NBC debate. Very interesting to see. Um, and the probably the out of all of this, the most fascinating, the most interesting, the first thing that we've ever seen is before the debates, candidates were warned not to swear or use any expletives during the debate because the feed will be on pre-delay which gives the no, the network no chance to hit the dump button, the bleep button, to in order to suppress their potential swear words. And a letter to each respective campaign, ABC says, quote, We wanted to take this opportunity to remind you that, as the debate will air on the ABC Broadcast Network, we are governed by Federal Communications Commission's indecency rules. We will not be broadcasting on any delay, so there will be no opportunity to edit out foul language. Candidates should therefore avoid cursing or expletives in accordance with the federal law and FCC guidelines. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you at the walkthroughs and at the debate later this week. Okay, so that was obviously the targeted at Beto O'Rourke, who has quite the track record of swearing, uh, mostly just because, in my opinion, he wanted to get more attention, and, you know, the only way to do that is kind of be unconventional. He certainly was. There was a video of him talking, uh, as we talked about in previous episodes of this podcast, uh, when he was talking about, uh, you know, gun violence, how it's really messed up. Uh, instead of saying messed, he said something else. We bleeped it out, and uh, here's what he said. Oh, we do know this is <laughs> okay, so that's what he said. He actually then uh, was asked about it. He was previously scheduled to be on CNN's uh, State of the Union Sunday morning show. He reiterated those comments and actually said it on the air. I, I wasn't actually watching it live, uh, but the so I don't know if they were able to dump it live because I'm sure they were instructed. Someone in the control room was instructed to have their finger on the dump button. So you know, or maybe every network uh, going forward will have their finger on the dump button when he comes in. They bleeped it out uh, on the CNN version, 
which they posted in their archives later on. Uh, but he reiterated those statements, said basically the same exact thing. He responded on that uh, State of the Union show, hosted normally by Jake Tapper. This time it was by Dana Bash. The rhetoric that we've used, the thoughts and prayers that you just referred to, it has done nothing to stop the epidemic of gun violence. To protect our kids, our families, our fellow Americans in public places, at a Walmart in El Paso where 22 were killed, in Sutherland Springs, in a church, uh, one or two a day all over this country, 100 killed daily in the United States of America. We're averaging about 300 mass shootings a year. No other country comes close. So yes, this is fucked up. And if we don't call it out for what it is, if we're not uh, able to speak clearly, if we're not able to act decisively, then we will continue to have this kind of bloodshed in America. I agree with that. Uh, I mean, there's no policy presented there, but what he said, I, I cannot dispute. So those are all the thoughts that I had going into the debate. I thought it was amusing that they had to send out a memo saying that you can't swear. Uh, I was interested to see who would be moderating it. Uh, and also just the format, um, because you know what I've kind of deemed uh, referencing and in reference to previous presidential debates is these really start to get super formal when candidates, uh, when there's nominees on both sides. When you see the big nominees, the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, Trump and Hillary, when they have those uh, backgrounds with, I think it's the Constitution written on it, the blue backgrounds with the white text, that's when you really see the debates start to heat up. It's not as show business. This whole entire thing was literally just reality TV the whole way through. That's all it was. It was just yelling. It was literally just tons of blabber. Um, and that's all it was. And this, so this is where we get into the more post-debate. All of it was just this. The whole entire time. Perhaps we can add some reverb. It just reverb. It did that. And then times 10 uh, on the obnoxious level. That's literally all it was. It was just blabber the whole time. Now, there were there were some good parts, though. Uh, I think the first half was a lot more eventful than the second half, in my very humble opinion. Um, there were a lot of interesting kind of mixes. An example of one of those is Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders, one we've not really seen much before. Uh, in one argument, Mr. Buttigieg made fun of Mr. Sanders' prior language, kind of famous, about a bill that he wrote, just to refresh your mind. Uh, Mr. Sanders said this at a prior debate weeks before. Second of all, you don't know that, second Bernie. of all, we'll come I, to you in a second, I do know, and I wrote the damn bill. Okay, so he gets the big applause there. Buttigieg then responds, kind of mocked him for what he said. I thought he did it in a very amusing way. Every study done shows that Medicare for all is the most cost-effective approach to providing health care to every man, woman, and child in this country. I, who wrote the damn bill, if I may say so. Okay, so then, you know, he comes in, uh, says that. He, he uh, I mean, was that necessary to kind of reiterate that, bring up his point? No, I, I, you know, I think um, Bernie Sanders had his time to, uh, to, to make that point. Um, I don't know if... That was totally necessary to bring that up. Uh, and he said it again, which, of course, prompted Pete Buttigieg's response. The, the problem, Senator Sanders, with that damn bill that I you wrote that. and that Senator Warren backs, is that it doesn't trust the American people. I, I trust you to choose what makes the most sense for you. Not my way or the highway. Now, look, 
I think we do have to go far beyond tinkering with the ACA. I propose Medicare for all who want it. We take a version of Medicare, we make it available for the American people, and if we're right as progressives that that public alternative is better, then the American people will figure that out for themselves. I trust the American people to make the right choice for them. Why don't you? Okay, very scripted there. I, I agree with everything that he said, actually. Uh, I don't think the okay the reason he is saying that is not you know he's kind of he's he's just such quest for him to make your own decisions is I mean okay that's actually a very conservative idea at heart but also that is not the reason he I mean it is fiscally wise to do what Pete Buttigieg is proposing and that was even a subject of conversation later on in the debate where Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden got into an argument. We'll talk about that in a second. But the idea that people in America, especially those who are uh, upper middle class and even uh, upper class, can have the choice to not take these benefits uh, that the government is, in Bernie Sanders' plan, forcing you to take, is actually makes a lot of sense. I think the people who cannot afford health care, who need health care, who want to opt in to this health care plan— they should be able to do so, but there should be rules, kind of just almost um, bordering this, that not everyone can be a part of it. And Pete Buttigieg is saying, well, you know, he's kind of cutting it in between. He's saying, and uh, he's just saying, look, I have a program. I'm going to give everyone a choice. Private institutions, whatever, you can keep going, you can do whatever you want, you can literally do whatever you want. I'm going to have a plan, it's an optional plan, I run it, the government runs it, and you can opt in if you want, basically from what I understand. That, in my and I know they don't like this opt-in buy-in language or whatever, but that's kind of what it is. And his plan, fiscally, for the United States as a whole entity, makes a lot of sense. For more on this, we go to the second-to-least low-polling candidate on the stage, Amy Klobuchar. And while Bernie wrote the bill, I read the bill. And on page 8, on page 8 of the bill, it says that we will no longer have private insurance as we know it. But So that's what she says. That, that, that it was probably the best moment for her in the whole debate. Shortly after this, there were some moments of contention where Julian Castro, by the way, the lowest polling candidate on the stage, all the way farthest to the right, went after Joe Biden, not, not metaphorically, uh, right positioned on the stage. Uh, gotta be careful. He went after Joe Biden like he wronged him terribly, like, like he did something morally incorrect. It was, this was probably the, the most famous moment of the whole debate. It was classic Washington, crossing over to political points and personal weaknesses. It was just insane. It was one of the uh, more jocular moments of the debate. It was kind of a long-winded argument uh, about policy. Uh, you know, I grew up with a grandmother who had type 2 diabetes, and I watched her condition get worse and worse. Uh, but that whole time, she had Medicare. I want every single American family to have a strong Medicare plan available. And I would not require them to opt in. They would automatically be enrolled. They wouldn't have to buy in. That's a big difference because Barack Obama's vision was not to leave 10 million people uncovered. They he wanted every single Joe person Biden. in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would they not. They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. All right, contention, contention. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. to buy in. If she qualifies for Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said? 
you said just two minutes ago? His, his health care plan would not automatically enroll you. You would have to opt in. My health care plan would. That's a big difference. I'm fulfilling, fulfilling the legacy Ooh. of Barack Obama, and you're not. I'll be surprised Ooh. to him. Andrew Yang. Okay, that would be a surprise to him. He, that was actually a really good comeback. Joe Biden handled that really, really, really well. The other thing that Joe Biden tried to do in this debate, and I actually thought he was probably one of the biggest winners of this whole debate, he clearly tried to be young and quick, again, in everything that he that he uh, has done. When I saw him walk out, I kind of just saw that he was kind of force, like forcing himself to run, to be lively, be awake, be alive, just kind of forget this whole idea that people think he's an old man. Uh, it's almost as if he knows that many classic moderate, not radical, mostly Christian people are going to vote for him, by and large, he just needs that other sliver, which is actually quite more than a sliver, to vote for him. He tries that, uh, probably is told by his campaign to just do that, be lively, be young. It remains in the forefront of his mind when he is consumed with other things, or when he's not consumed with other things, uh, but when he is consumed with other things, when he's getting really big into a thought, he kind of forgets about that and is just so passionate about what he does. And one of the responses, the former vice president became so enthralled with his own policy that he made it appear that as if he is living in the gothic century of record players. We bring social workers into homes and parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't want they don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make oh, sure oh. you have the record player on at oh. night. The, the, the phone. Make sure the kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school, or a very poor background, will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. There's Thank so you, much. We, no, I'm, I'm going to go like the rest of them do. Okay. Uh, first of all, I thought it was good that he kept going. He, in the prior, prior debates, he'd be just like, okay, well, my time's up. You know, I mean, have you ever heard that before in the history of Washington? Uh, but he did keep going in that one, uh, which is good. But the other thing is, like, he you could tell he was really enthusiastic about his policy there. The way he conducted himself, the way he was going so fast. It was almost like his brain was moving faster than his mouth. Uh, <laughs> you know, he was very enthusiastic about it there. He truly does care, and I think he would actually be a decent president. Uh, I thought it was funny, though, that he said the record player tried to correct himself a bunch of times, but he was like, okay, this is not working. Let me just keep going. Uh, and the whole thing, though, as, as many times with the Democratic debates, there was very little policy discussed, or at least the policy would be based off of uh, emotions, or they would cite emotions. Uh, except for in the healthcare arena, which is actually really interesting uh, and the source of many clashes. Basically, whether they say it or not, healthcare for more people is, you know, raising more middle to high middle, uh, high middle class taxes, and you know, less is less of that. That's basically all you have to know. Julian Castro uh, has a plan that we talked about earlier. He hates relative to Joe Biden, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know. The, the idea that Julian Castro, his idea uh, of health care and the way he, you know, kind of presents this to Joe Biden uh, was really interesting, as we talked about before. Uh, Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren also uh, had a, a clash of ideas, let's just say. They, they did not like each other uh, much <laughs> during this debate, uh, and it was really an interesting kind of people to see that we we saw them finally become on this fine stage. Uh, we've never really seen them interact much before, and we saw them uh, tonight on the stage. I know that the senator says she's for Bernie. Well, I'm for Barack. On Medicare for all, costs are going to go up 
for wealthier individuals and costs are going to go up for giant corporations. But for hardworking families across this country, costs are going to go down. So, um, all right. Um, let me just take a look at your policy here. See, like, a lot of the stuff, there's a lot of overstatements. And it's not, it's, it's in every party. Uh, just politics. You know, there's a lot of overstatements. Uh, overgeneralizations, perhaps, would be the better the better term. And uh, there was a lot of that. I mean, I you know, I think it's more so within the uh, ultra-progressive candidates like Warren and Biden. Not that it's their fault. I'm just saying the way that they... Well, I guess I suppose it is directly their fault, but indirectly it might not be because of their policy, the way they do things. And I think it's really more important not to watch these debates. I think it's more important to actually read the policy and make sure and fact-check them and such. That's the better way to go about this, not just watching this reality TV that is only, you know, supposed to exist for the ratings and the betterment of the network's brand. Another one of these famous clashes, uh, clashes also involved Bernie Sanders. He brought his famous line out against Joe Biden, and Joe Biden actually had a really underrated comment. I, I think this, and I know I keep saying moment of the debate, but this was probably the most underrated moment in the whole entire debate. Let us be clear, Joe. In the United States of America, we are spending twice as much per capita on healthcare, Canadians, or any other major country on Earth. This America. Yeah, see, that is a really, really good comeback. This is America. It is America. Obviously, that is just blatantly obvious. But what he did there was actually really, really smart. The United States, out of literally every single uh, nation in the world is the most innovative. You can get a surgery. You can get anything you want, basically in terms of Medicare, in the United States. People come from across the world to come to the United States for their standout, incredibly successful medical uh, program. Um, the, United, the, the New York Times wrote a phenomenal article um, which I think the thesis basically says everything about it. They say the United States, and this was in October 9th of 2017, they say the United States uh, healthcare system has many problems, but it also promotes more innovation than its counterparts in other nations. That's why discussions of remaking American healthcare often raise concerns about threats to innovation. That is the biggest problem that comes with these, uh, and it's really not talked about much, but the lack of innovation, the potential lack of innovation that would come as a result of this policy being enacted is the biggest threat. The United States, as published by clinicaltrials.gov, is performs exponentially more clinical trials than every other country on the planet. Africa, all of Africa, performs 8,912. All of Russia, and this is clinical trials, 5,525. 5, um, South America performs 10,178. Canada performs 20,690. Greenland performs one. But, I mean, they are whatever, uh, how many, I think 836,000 square miles. That's three, size the, <laughs> three times the size of Texas with like the, you know, 60th of the population. So, no big uh, comparisons there. But out of all of that, with the highest being about 20,000, I guess 35,000 in China, uh, the United States has 124,702. I mean, so that that's a lot, um, a, a lot, a lot, a lot of, of clinical trials done in the United States. That's like, you know, four times more, or a little bit less than four times more uh, than what China does. And the United States has 
far less population than China. So, the United States has, without a, without a doubt, the most successful, most innovative medical program in the world, without a doubt. People come to the United States from other countries, as many people know, they come here for the outstanding medical, economic, and intellectual values that are as a result of America, people who migrate to America, people who immigrate to America, and the people who live in America. So, that's the biggest concern, in my opinion, in terms of healthcare. Not the finance, but the lack of innovation that will come as a result of the inaction of ultra-left progressive policies. Also, in terms of policy, Beto O'Rourke was a big winner in this debate, uh, one he really desperately needed to win. He was kind of starting to go way down, in my book. He basically failed miserably and appeared desperately in all the other ones. And in this one, he, his delivery was actually really, really good. I've been a big critic of him. I disagree with his style, some of his policy, and many things that he's done. Uh, but I think he had an undeniable breakthrough moment in the ABC debate last night. A little bit aggressive, but he delivered it super well in a way that you could kind of tell it wasn't that scripted, but he planned to say it, and it fit really well with the moderator's question. Here he is. If it's a weapon that was designed to kill people on a battlefield, if the high-impact, high-velocity round, when it hits your body, shreds everything inside of your body because it was designed to do that so that you would bleed to death on a battlefield and not be able to get up and kill one of our soldiers. When we see that being used against children, and in Odessa, I met the mother of a 15-year-old girl who was shot by an AR-15. Mm -hmm. And that mother watched her bleed to death over the course of an hour because so many other people were shot by that AR-15 in Odessa and Midland. There weren't enough ambulances to get to them in time. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against That was the best, probably, moment for Beto O'Rourke. Well, actually, no, undeniably the best moment for Beto O'Rourke in this debate. Uh, and keep him nine. You know, he's a former El Paso or Texas congressman. He was in El Paso where this big shooting, killing uh, more than 15, about 20 people. He was there. He represented that district. On the very interesting and, and less popular approach to politics, we have the man himself, Andrew Yang. He was a very funny man throughout this debate. He played the theatrics and interactions, you know, of politics in a different way. He's starting to gain a lot of thrust. He's definitely in the top tier or, uh, you know, the top half of Democratic candidates. And <laughs> this is just kind of insane. He literally said that he's going to pay people uh, during his, during his you know, through his policy, during not even when he's president, when he is running. Like, right now, he's going to pay 10 people the universal income that he has proposed through his famous theory of a freedom dividend. And he wants to test and hopefully prove this very interesting, very unconventional form of policy he even admits that it's unconventional. That's why I'm going to do something unprecedented tonight. My campaign will now give a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month for an entire year to 10 American families, someone watching this at home right now. If you believe that you can solve your own problems better than any politician, go to yang2020.com and tell us how $1,000 a month will help you do just that. This is how we will get our country working for us again, the American people. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, if someone gives me a thousand bucks a month, I'm definitely going to vote for them. <laughs> I mean, is that bribery? Does that, uh, you know, break any campaign finance laws? That's basically the big question. Uh, 
Uh, it's unclear, according to CNBC, if Yang plans to use campaign funds to pay the monthly sum and if it would be legal to do so. And my question is, yeah, how does that even work? Is the campaign going to fund it? Is he going to fund it? What if his campaign all of a sudden goes under and he can't afford to continually pay? We don't know. I mean, the bigger question is whether or not this would actually be legal within the campaign finance laws to do this. And the answer is non-existent at the moment. So, you know, if, the, if there's a question as to how this might work in the law and the answer is not in the law books, I mean, that, that's really how you know that your idea is truly eccentric and perhaps that you succeeded. Uh, it, it was a really interesting debate overall. Um, perhaps Amy Klobuchar was the cringiest candidate on that stage. Um, she came in with a scripted line that I'm sure one of her uh, millennial advisors came up with that kind of just... <laughs> it, it was just... It was very amusing. She said... Houston, we have a problem. And the Houston... The problem... The thing... The, the funny thing, I, the planned thing, is that this debate was in Houston. I, you know, maybe I have to take a second to let that settle in. Uh, you know, she kind of just worked that in in a very kind of just like unnecessary way. And I suppose that was the cringiest moment in the debate. Maybe we can add some uh, cringe effect to that. Houston, we have a problem. Okay. While all this was going on, President Trump was actually speaking in, in, in Baltimore. To the contrary of what Kamala Harris said about him, who, by the way, I do not like. She literally said during the debate, quote, We all know he is watching. He, she said that during the debate. Literally at the same time, he was speaking. You know, all of what each of them said throughout the nights, they both experienced differently. I, for the most part, disagree with. I obviously side with the Democrats, uh, and as I often do, but this was just another Trump rally. Trump was literally speaking at a rally. You would think that her campaign would tell her that before she went out. Yeah, obviously, he's watched past debates, but to, to remain factually accurate is certainly uh, the most, you know, I mean, you know, that that's the real accuracy, I, you know. And one of the points I think she said, okay, that's it, Mr. President, you can go back to watching Fox News. The crowd roared, of course. As they should. Uh, but he was not watching the debate. He did not tune in. I mean, I'm sure he's watching Rerun, but, you know, I don't know he was not watching it live. I found it really interesting. On Trump's White House stream on YouTube, there was, and this is just off the top of my head, about 2,000 uh, watching Trump's speech directly from the rally, and more than 400,000 watching on YouTube for this debate alone. Those are only from YouTube. In the TV ratings overall, though, uh, ABC had about 13 million tune in to the debate on actual TV, not including the various digital platforms they broadcasted on. That is relative to the NBC debate with about 15 million and the CNN debate with about 8 or 9 million. This one is right in the middle of each of them. I think it really shows you, though, how much Americans generally do not like Trump. Obviously, this 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 debate is like such entertainment and people like that, but there's a lot of Republicans who just don't even want to cross in to Democrats, which is very dangerous. It goes the other way. There's a lot of Democrats that don't even want to cross into Republican land. Uh, I don't obviously like Trump. In fact, I, you know, I never trust uh, polls, but I always read them. Trump is polling behind Democrats, according to a recent poll, and also his approval ratings are not as hot as they uh, have been recently. Uh, according to 538.com, uh, okay, this is actually, um, yeah, 53.7% uh, disapprove since December, um, let's see here, yes, so, since the beginning of the government shutdown, 53.7% disapprove. That's a metric from there to September 12th. Um, 
and so that's where that comes from. Latest poll from the ABC News Washington Post, the one that Trump has been certainly not very happy about at at all. Uh, September 5th, 2019 was the recent one. Net, 38, 27 strongly, and this is all in the proof. 38 approve, 27 strongly approve, 11 somewhat approve, 8 somewhat approve, 48 strongly, sorry, 8 somewhat disapprove, 48 strongly disapprove, 6 no opinion. There's a whole chart that we'll put on the website, j-ray.com, if you want to uh, watch the, or read the whole entire thing. Twitter was very, or I mean, sorry, Trump was very happy on this. He expressed his thoughts on, Twitter, on his Twitter. This is just really funny. In a hypothetical poll done by one of the worst pollsters of them all, the Amazon, Washington Post, and ABC, which I predicted, uh, which predicted I would lose to crooked Hillary by 15 points, in parentheses, how did that work out? Sleepy Joe, Pocahontas, and virtually all others would beat me in the general election. This is a phony suppression poll meant to build up their Democrat partners. I haven't even started campaigning yet, and I'm constantly fighting fake news like Russia, Russia, Russia. Look at North Carolina last night. Dan Bishop, down big in the polls, wins. Easier than 2016. Uh, Okay, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, polls are not good, but... The Washington Post, obviously, yeah, they have a liberal bias, but it is not like this Democrat conspiracy theory in any way. You know, I mean, they're not, they're a liberal paper, just like the majority of liberal papers out there. The news is constantly skewed, but the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal are probably the best papers out there. And yeah, obviously, Jeff Bezos does not like Trump, but he think he has bigger problems. <laughs> so, that's what's going on there in, uh, in, in fine Trump world. And uh, also in the Democratic debate, what do you think? 312-625-8492 is the fine show number. If you want to call in, uh, I appreciate you listening. Uh, according to my fine timer here and on the internet radio, which we happen to be broadcasting live on right now, it seems as if I might have to... Uh, let me just see here. Yes, I might have to take a break for the purposes of this fine recording... Um, So we are going to be right back. Currently, it is 2.07 p.m., Saturday, September 14th, 2019. Wow, I spent 38 minutes and 13 seconds on this one topic. Oh, I felt like 10. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Currently 2.09. Let's talk about in uh, technology news this fine day. Apple has announced their new iPhones and a new Apple Watch. Uh, and also a new iPad. Probably the most irrelevant thing, the iPad out of all these, but perhaps the watch is second to that. Uh, Apple Watch 5 was not expected and did not have many new physically new changes, but it was highly anticipated, I think. There are currently... Three new iPhones, or versions of iPhones, that you can purchase. There's the iPhone 11, the iPhone uh, 11 Pro, 
and the iPhone 11 Pro Max. Right? Isn't that what it's called? I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. Yeah, well, iPhone 11 Pro Max. A lot of subordinate clauses in that. Um, and, of course, their marketing is just uh, the best in, in the world, uh, by far. Uh, <laughs> there's the uh, So, for currently, they're, they're, uh, the lineup that they're selling is the iPhone 8, the iPhone 10, the iPhone 10R, the iPhone 11, and the iPhone 11 Pro. And there's also the 11 Pro Max. Um, the animation that they have on their websites for all these phones is just insane. It is beautiful. It is just... Like, I really encourage you to go look at this page. I downloaded the JavaScript code for the, 11, the iPhone 11 Pro with the help of uh, some friends. 9,000 lines of JavaScript code to animate a simple sales page for a phone. Like, 9,000. And they're actually, in my opinion, somewhat... I mean, they're totally overpriced, but they're fair. The iPhone 11 um, starts at $699. It comes in white, black, green, yellow, purple, and then their product red. You can get in 64 gigabytes for 699, 128 for 749, 256 for 849. It's kind of like the 11, in my opinion, is a little bit just you know specced up wireless charging version of the iPhone 10R. Great phone though. If you're to buy the 64 gigs with any carrier, it starts at 699. I think that's actually a really good price, but. I think if you have the iPhone 10 and you're looking to upgrade or you have the money to upgrade to an iPhone 11, I would hold off. Although I might reconsider if you have like unlimited money, <laughs> which is obviously not the case for you know the majority of the world, uh, <laughs> then perhaps you could consider the iPhone 11 Pro Max. Uh, it's, it, it, I think if you really want to have a phone that will last for a long time, this is the best one. It has three cameras. The other one just has two. Not that you would ever need three. Well, actually, I suppose it's four cameras if you include the, the front-facing camera. Three uh, back-facing cameras, though. Uh, ultra-wide camera, that's their new one. And then they continue to have the normal camera and then the uh, telephoto camera. The ultra-wide has a 13-millimeter focal length, f2.4 aperture, uh, and 120 degrees field of view. Wide camera has a 26 millimeter focal length with f 1.8 aperture, uh, and then they have this new 12 megapixel sensor. The telephoto camera, 52 millimeter focal length, larger f f 2.0 aperture, and that same 12 megap- megapixel sensor. You can really see they they have on their website uh, the quality of the photos zooming in and you know just using the cameras. There's a lot of digital zoom, of course, that goes on. And there's some movement within the cameras, but it's a really interesting concept, and the way they've implemented it is uh, pretty fascinating. You also can shoot, just like before, 4K video. Uh, it's kind of ridiculously powerful for something that sits in your pocket the most of your life. Um, really, really cool night mode uh, that they've introduced with that. Um, high-tech meets low-light. They say, from dimly lit restaurants to moonlit beaches, the new night mode uses intelligent software and A13 Bionic to deliver low-light shots uh, never before possible on iPhone, and it all happens automatically. 
You can also experiment with manual controls to dial in even more detail and less noise. If you look at these pictures, they're really, really cool. But the thing is, I almost sound like I'm advertising a camera here, and of course I'm not advertising it. But, I mean, if you're a big photographer, a big video person, this is probably the, the thing for you. The only thing to look at or even consider when that is not a, you know, camera-related is the ridiculous amount of power. This new A13 Bionic chip uh, has a, quote, focus on machine learning and cross it, which enables experiences that simply aren't found on any other smartphone. 64-bit fusion, the fastest CPU in a smartphone, fastest GPU in a smartphone. They claim neural engine for advanced machine learning and also face ID. It's eight cores, by the way. That is eight cores, the same amount that I'm currently running on the computer that I'm uh, using right now. You know, I mean, it was a pretty specked out computer, 64 gigs of RAM. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous for a phone. And not that this phone has 64 gigs of RAM, but I'm just saying. Also, they have machine learning accelerators, and then they, you know, just to kind of make this array even on their website, they have to add Core ML3. Now, the big other thing that I suppose you might want in 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 a very powerful phone like this is more battery life. They added five hours extra of battery life, they claim. You get four hours more with iPhone 11 Pro, five hours more with Pro Max, and 50% charge in around 30 minutes with this new fast charge feature that they uh, introduced. Uh, It's also um, IP68 water resistant to a depth of four meters for up to 30 minutes and dust resistant. Um, And, you know, there's a bunch of other kind of minor upgrades, uh... Uh, you know, most of which are actually enabled through software and such. Um, it's an interesting-looking phone. It's almost it's, there's a lot of memes about the design of it. It's three cameras and a flash. Uh, there's memes of it. I mean, it literally looks like stoves. <laughs> you know, it's like you. And there's memes of people like photoshopping pans with eggs on them, and they're frying eggs on the phone. There's fidget spinner memes. It looks like a fidget spinner on the back. Looks like a really great phone, very powerful phone. I don't know if it's worth the amount of money that they're charging for it, uh, but it certainly is a very interesting phone. There's a lot of iPad users out there. The iPad also got an upgrade, something that uh, I think their sales have been pretty low on. Could be wrong on that. But they've really been trying to uh, push this new iPad. Um, It comes in three colors, uh, space gray, silver, and gold. They only come in two uh, storage sizes, 32 gigabytes and 128 gigabytes, um, and it's a really, really cool iPad. Uh, the you know I think the the integration of their file system is really, really cool. I think the way that I mean I think that's also a lot of software, but the way they're implementing it, and especially in the new iPad Pros, is really cool. And to be honest, I don't use an iPad a lot. In fact, I think. Next to the Apple Watch, it's the most overpriced, overhyped product. It's incredibly powerful. It works for some people. I like a laptop. I really do. Even if it's not an Apple laptop, uh, which preferably it is. I I like a laptop. Um, And, you know, uh, that's just my opinion on that. And, um, you know, I don't think this is the best. I mean... 
if you're going to buy a new iPad, this is actually a really good price. I believe it starts at um, just three twenty nine. Yeah, it does. It's in, in, and the one hundred twenty eight gigabyte version is hundred in four hundred twenty nine. And then these new AirPods, or sorry, this new Apple Watch is also really cool. Uh, it comes in, you know, they always change up the way they do it. The new Apple Watch is really, really cool because the, and you know, not everyone's going to buy the, uh, the cheapest version possible, but the Apple Watch Series 5, uh, I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure it starts, like, really cheap. I heard that from someone. The Apple Watch Series 3, which is the previous model, is only $200, and that's a very fine model, and that's where it starts. That's the same price as AirPods, so if you want to buy AirPods or an Apple Watch, I mean, which one would you want? Um, and if you want the Series 3 with, and that, so that, that one, the cheap one, 199 bucks, is for the, uh, just the GPS, but if you want GPS and cellular, it's only $300. $300 for an Apple Watch with cellular. Obviously, you have to pay the carrier afterwards, uh, and it's only 30 bucks more for the bigger version, so, why not? I mean, this, this is actually a really good deal. You don't have the latest Apple Watch, but the upgrades in the Series 4 and Series 5 were so minimal that, like, why not? This is a really good thing. The other thing that they've done is they've actually they've changed the size. They've increased the 38 to a 40 and the 42 to a 44. So, that's new. The Apple Watch is going to be available September 20th. You can order right now, and you can also order those iPhones I was talking about before. Those are those are good products. Um, very very interesting, and we always like to keep keep an eye on tech news. I watched the keynote; I thought it was really interesting. I, can I also just say, I, you know, I, I this is so obvious, and I've followed this for a while. The way Apple does their presentations, they have a copyright on presentations. They use their own, you know, company developed software keynote which you can use too on your mac for their for their fine um product launches and it is just the best best animation best can i mean everything about it it's very very beautiful uh and uh, we always like to follow those right here on the jdorty podcast it is currently 220 if you're listening on the stream we appreciate your listenership we'll be right back this is the jdorty podcast Jadori Podcast, welcome back everyone, uh, 2.22 p.m. right now, Saturday, September 14th, as we come back here, we're episode number 107 of the Jadori Podcast, thank you for tuning in on the internet radio and on, of course, the podcast. Interesting story, uh, Democrats continue to push for impeachment, even though the smart ones know it will go nowhere, that's my own personal headline. Politico and the Washington Post have, uh, done fabulous reporting on this, as they frequently do. Um... Uh, it was it was just a really interesting story. Uh, let me preface this whole thing by, by just saying that I don't think impeachment is good for the country whatsoever. I will elaborate shortly. Uh, Democrats have their focus on this whole entire thing, especially in Congress, wrong, completely off-center when they talk about Mueller. Uh, as the report states, there was no direct communications or contact with the President of the United States at the time he was a candidate with the Russian government. That does not mean that they interf- that they did not interfere with the election. They obviously did. 
And that Trump, Trump Tower meeting about adoption policy, I mean, that was obviously a scam, right? I mean, that was just totally, just blatantly a scam. Russia did a lot of their interference, the majority of it, I would argue, through social media. And if they were dumb enough to reach out to Trump's campaign directly, or the other way around, if Trump were to, you know, uh, reach out to Russia, there would certainly, most certainly be grounds for impeachment. But this is not the case. And in this case, there are no grounds for impeachment, at least in this Mueller investigation. Uh, Trump is obviously a fraud. He's done a lot of fraudulent business deals over the over the years. He's just a big, you know, talk show dude who, you know, wanted to grow his brand, so he ran for president, as he's tried to do many times in the past. There are other areas, though, that Democrats could pursue if they wanted to be successful in their attempts for impeachment. If the House Judiciary, led by the man himself, Jerry Nadler, wanted to actually kick Trump out of his office, they could... Uh, and, you know, and not do this for the political gain of the party, which seems to be the case. He could go after Trump for about 29 different things, three of which are primed for attack. These three, as written by CNN, are Trump's alleged role in illegal hush money payments to two women who claim they've had affairs with him. Number two, Trump's alleged dangling of pardons to immigration officials who might break the law in order to get the border wall built. And, number three, Trump's potential emoluments clause violations and use of the presidency for personal profit. Those are just three out of the 29. And according to the New York Times, there um, are currently 10 federal criminal investigations currently underway into Trump, 8 state and local investigations into Trump, and 11 congressional investigations. I read those, and they write those in uh, order of uh, importance and potential outcome. Federal criminal investigations are probably the biggest ones, right? And then if he did something that directly does not even make it to federal law, uh, and state just has oversight on it, then that's a big deal. Then all the congressional ones, except for potentially the Judiciary Committee, part of the reason why they get so much coverage, and also the Intel Committee, uh, those are all just basically politics, right? I mean, seriously, that's kind of all it is. All these, investi- all these investigations uh, we continue to go on. Perhaps the most prevalent of all of them, uh, in terms of that is not talked about very often, is the Southern District of New York uh, and so many others. But basically, it's as simple as that. If they want to get Trump impeached, they have to refocus now that the Mueller report is out. They keep beating a dead horse. Uh, I don't think that even is the Democrats' biggest problem. They need to stop trying to get him impeached uh, in the first place. Because, first of all, they go for so long. And while he's a total, you know, these, 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 these hearings, they, in, you know, the impeachment procedures, they have to draft them, they have to go through the House, and then they have to get passed by the Senate, and then, um, you, know, you know, there's a whole process. And while Trump is a total con man, there's no tangible evidence yet that he committed crimes as President of the United States. He's insane, his rhetoric is terrible, but these are words, and you cannot get arrested for speaking. I do not like him. The Democratic House certainly does not like him. But impeachment look makes our country look very weak internationally. It also makes us look weak to have a buffoon in the office of presidency. But if we can't even solve problems within our own country, what can we do to help others? Seriously. Impeachment is terrible for the country. But Trump is an idiot. That's the moral of the story. Here's a highlight of the Intelligence Committee uh, and, and also just basically the Democratic Congress asking Mueller the point that they keep pushing back to, the point, the reason why they keep beating this dead horse Mueller report. This is why they keep going after that, according to the Democrats. Your reports expressly states that it does not exonerate the president. It does. And your investigation actually found, quote, multiple acts by the president that were capable of exerting undue influence over law enforcement investigations. 
including the Russian interference and obstruction investigations. Is that correct? Correct. Now, Director Mueller, can you explain in plain terms what that finding means so the American people can understand it? Uh, the president uh, was not, uh, uh, the president was not exculpated uh, for the acts that uh, he allegedly committed. Okay, so that's basically what they keep referring to. He was not exculpated or exonerated for the acts that he committed. Now, okay, that that's just merely a political term that Democrats are using. And it's also kind of a fluffy term that Mueller is using because he was not able or did not want to draw conclusions uh, from this report as to potential legal action that would be uh, taken upon and, and exerted upon the president. You know, that was supposed to be left for Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, you know, for him to read the report. And that's what they keep going back to. In a system of law, you are not exonerated, you are not not exonerated, you are innocent or guilty. Guilty or not guilty. That is how you plead. You never hear, you always see in the headlines, XYZ pleads not guilty to XYZ. Right? And that's what you see. You don't say XYZ is exonerated from the charges of XYZ, right? I mean, seriously. Um, there's a great opinion, which I said earlier about, uh, by CNN columnist Eli Honing. He wrote a phenomenal opinion on this and took questions from readers about it, especially some of the less mainstream potentials of impeachment. Um, and, you know, the, the more moderate side, or the more <laughs> seemingly becoming more progressive voice, Nancy Pelosi, expressed her opinions on this. So the media was asking her questions. She got a little bit irritated with the media about this whole thing. When they asked if it is appropriate for the media to keep using and putting in their headlines the move for impeachment, she kind of directed, she said, go ask Mitch, go ask Mitch McConnell. That, that's the guy that you want to talk to, not me. Are you uncomfortable with the term impeachment inquiry? Is there another term we should be using? I'm not. I- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Is it the right term? Right we are on our path. Where it takes us is where the fo- we will follow the facts. That's what it is. Why don't we spend some time going over to see Mitch McConnell and asking him why he doesn't want to save lives, why he will let every day go by where at least 100 people, large number of them children or teenagers, die from gun violence. Why is it that you're hung up on a word over here when lives are at stake over there? Thank you all. So I suppose that's actually a pretty good defense. Uh, you know, it's obvious kind of like, look over here. I don't know the answer to that question. But she has reason to actually do that. And that's how the progressive Nancy Pelosi reacts. She's actually a really good person. I um, kind of feel bad she's gotten in this progressive mess and kind of been caught in the crossfire of a lot of this political stuff. Uh, but she's kind of the OG of the Democrats, in a way. And she's in the position that allows her to uh, be in that, you know, exert that OG-ness, if you will. Uh, Let's talk about news that did not make it in the prime of the show today as we come to the close. Uh, President Trump fired National Security Advisor John Bolton, a position that is obviously quite influential to the president. 
Mike Pompeo, his Secretary of State, confirmed Bolton's resignation at the podium. So last night, the president asked for Ambassador Bolton's resignation. As I understand it, it was received this morning. I don't, I don't, I know everyone's talked about this for an awfully long time. There were definitely places that Ambassador and I, Bolton and I, had different views about how we should proceed. Okay, so that's what Mike Pompeo says. Trump said, "Yeah, well, I got along with him. He basically." Uh, there was some contention over whether or not he resigned or he was fired. They <laughs> obtained a letter of Bolton's resignation. It literally just said, Dear Mr. President, I'm, this is, I'm just paraphrasing, but basically just said, Dear Mr. President, uh, I am resigning. Thank you for your help, blah, blah, blah. Sincerely, John Bolton. There was a lot of question over if there was, you know, some tension between Trump and Bolton. Mike Pompeo said that Trump is well within his rights to fire Mr. Bolton. The president's entitled to the staff that he wants at, 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 at any moment. This is a staff person who works directly for the president of the United States, and he, he should have people that he trusts and values and whose uh, efforts and judgments benefit him in delivering American foreign policy. It's so that's what he says there. Uh, you know, Mike Pompeo, I wonder if he's going to say that if he gets fired, but you know, <laughs> seriously. Will he be surprised by that? He actually answered the question about, you know, the overall uh, if if—, if he was surprised by Bolton's firing, and he kind of gave a little bit of a sarcastic response, but something that was pretty insightful when a reporter asked him a question. Bolton was on the guidance to be here, so were you two blindsided by what occurred today, that he's no longer with the administration? Was it news to you today? Because last night you were told he would be here today. Yeah, I I'm never surprised. <laughs> yeah, that was actually a really good response by him, and uh, you know, it's kind of a way to dodge a question, but also do it pretty artfully. Exactly one minute and, uh, one minute, one hour and 44 seconds into this episode of the Jade Rudy Podcast, episode number 107. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Appreciate your listenership. The website is jade-dorty.com. Learn more about the podcast and everything that we do at jade-dorty.com and the JD Media Network. You can also read the Doherty Files for show clips and highlights of this fine podcast. We usually do a weekly file podcast. That now is on hiatus, uh, for the school year. We'll be back next summer, of course. For the Weekly File podcast, also produced on the JD Media Network. Thank you very much for listening to this. Find episode number 107 of the JD Podcast. Subscribe in all your favorite podcast directories. We're going to be on uh, Amazon uh, Echo soon, so stay tuned for that. We're trying to diversify and expand our content as we always try to. Try and involve our content a little bit more in other digital platforms. Thank you for listening. This is the JD Podcast. The J-Dorty Podcast is hosted in the J.D. Media Network Studios in Chicago, Illinois. The J-Dorty Podcast is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by J-Dorty. TJDP is voiced by Newsmic VoiceOver, hosted by Blueberry, and edited with Audition. The J-Dorty Podcast is a J.D. Media Network production. Copyright J-Dorty 2019. Make sure to listen to other J.D. Media Network productions like the J.D.R.C. Politics Podcast for weekly discussions on international politics or listen to the Weekly File Podcast for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-doherty.com or view archive clips and show highlights at thedohertyfiles.com or listen to other J.D. Media Network productions in nearly any podcast directory. Thank you for listening to this episode of the J. Doherty Podcast.